Do you remember reading The Mouse and the Motorcycle? What I remember better is that someone read it to me. And that was a student teacher whose name I have lost. Um, it was probably when I was in second or third grade, so that's a lot of years ago. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. And on today's show, writer Leslie Connor is joining us to talk about Beverly Cleary's classic novel, The Mouse and the Motorcycle. Leslie is a popular author who writes for today's kids and teens. And I still see her face. I still see her lips forming the words. And I see her excitement about the read. That's kind of amazing to me that all these years later, I do remember, I'll tell you, it's 50 years. As part of our conversation today with Leslie, we're going to touch on some key moments and themes throughout The Mouse and the Motorcycle. And we'll chat about its renowned author, Beverly Cleary, who at the time of this recording is 102 years old. She's considered to be one of America's greatest children's book authors. Surprisingly, when Beverly was a kid, she actually struggled with reading, and she was inspired from a young age to someday write children's books that young readers like herself would love and identify with. And she nailed it. Well, I think the emotions of children don't change. Their life situations change, but inside they're just like they always were. They want a home. They want parents that love them. They want friends, teachers that they like. <laughs> and I think that's rather universal. And just like Beverly Cleary, Leslie will share with us how she also had trouble with reading as a kid. Her latest novel, The Truth is Told by Mason Buttle, introduces us to a lovable character who has learning differences and faces harsh realities. If you kind of spend some time in a middle school and just scan around, you'll see the kid who's uncomfortable and possibly just the most earnest, most helpful person, you know, in the building. Leslie will be sharing more with us about her writing and how she approaches her work to the point where she even sketches floor plans of the houses in her stories. It's such a cool way to do character development, and you'll definitely want to hear more about it. But for now... Let's get back to talking with Leslie about the mouse and the motorcycle and what she remembers from the book. For one thing, Ralph the mouse in the book is in peril many times. One of the most memorable times I thought was when he was trapped under a drinking glass and then you know, have that neat trick of shuffling a postcard under there in order to keep him there. And then, of course, being shaken out of the glass over the, like this was trailing ivy or something on the outside of the building. I mean, could have been a long drop, but he had little grippers and he got, you know, he held on. So I remembered that scene really well. I also remember that, you know, he was driving the toy car. How much fun is that? Um, and that it was kind of stuck on that in that space between the elevator and the floor you know that sort of crack where anything mouse size could be lost forever and you know I think the tires of the the little I think it was an ambulance actually were spinning you know they're spinning there or something (laughs) like that so I thought that was really memorable and of course his moments with the boy Keith I think his name was Mm -hmm. um you know his moments with the boy too the exchange and how it's so cute how neither were really that surprised that we're talking 
you know, it's really <laughs> kind of fun. And I can tell you that this is the book that put the word threadbare into my vocabulary. I know that that's where I learned that word. Now, there are a whole lot of words I can't tell you where I learned them, but I know that that's where I really knew what that word meant at that, you know, seven or eight years old or whatever it was. Because, of course, uh, Ralph would drive the motorcycle and look for the threadbare spots because that's where you could really get some good traction and he liked to zip around on those particular spots. It's an old hotel or inn maybe, in I think in California, in the mountains, and definitely in the mountains. And you, know, you can tell it's really not a perfect place. It's a little ragtag, a little campy. And to just think of those old rugs in there, I don't know why, but that really struck me. And so Threadbare is something I took along with me. As Leslie mentioned, this book takes place in California at the Mountain View Inn. It's where a mouse named Ralph lives with his family, and a boy named Keith comes to stay with his parents. As we quickly find out, Ralph is a young mouse that takes a lot of risks, as we know children might do. You parents out there might just cringe thinking about it, like in this passage here, which I'm going to read for you. Most of all, Ralph's mother worried about Ralph. She worried because he was a reckless mouse who stayed out late in the daytime when he should have been home safe in bed. She worried when Ralph climbed the curtain to sit on the windowsill to watch the chipmunk in the pine tree outside and the cars in the parking lot below. She worried because Ralph wanted to go exploring down the hall instead of traveling under the floorboards like a sensible mouse. Heaven only knew what dangers he might meet in the hall, maids, bellboys, vacuum cleaners. Ralph's mother had a horror of vacuum cleaners. Ralph, who was used to his mother's worries, got a good running start and was already halfway up the telephone cord. Remember your Uncle Victor, his mother called after him. Ralph seemed not to hear. Ralph's boundless curiosity takes him all over the hotel and eventually to room 215, where he spots a red, shiny toy motorcycle that belongs to Keith, and he hops on it. Ralph loses control of the bike and he falls into the wastebasket, where he's trapped. Despite Ralph's best efforts to hide, Keith ultimately discovers Ralph. And somehow, they immediately start talking to each other, like it's normal for a mouse and a boy to have a conversation. That could have been made into a bigger moment in the book, and yet I'm certain she made the right choice in leaving it as she wrote it. But isn't that interesting? Another author might have had screaming. And Leslie was struck by how Beverly Cleary seamlessly crafted this connection between Keith and Ralph. Any time that we can care for another creature other than ourselves, and actually I'm talking about the mouse caring for the boy because he is the one who went and got him the much-needed aspirin pill, I think that is kind of a timeless theme. Also, the fact that we could ever communicate with animals, I think, is just something almost everyone can relate to. Who hasn't wished to be able to communicate with a mouse or a bird or a toad? What's he thinking? What's he saying? That kind of thing. Kindness is definitely a theme. And trust. Mm -hmm. Uh, The boy trusted the mouse with a valued toy, which, you know, when you think about it, that is all... Uh, you know, a young boy has <laughs> to call his very own, and we, it, it's noted that he saved up his own allowance to buy it and to lend it to a little daredevil anyway, just because it would be so cool to see him ride it. It was trusting, you know. Were there any other moments in the book that really stood out to you? Well, I mentioned peril, and then I think what naturally happens is then the moments of triumph. And this is sort of what I say about books that have something sad in them. 
think it's a contrast to joy. And this book to me, you know, is a similar thing. Watching a character get what they need or get what they want is really integral, I think. That's an important piece of this. So, I mean, one scene that really stands out is the boy's generosity does turn the motorcycle over to Ralph. This is yours now. And, you know, you can hear Ralph just planning, oh, I could go here, I could go there, that kind of thing. And so the world opens for him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a gift from another character in a lot of ways. And he also provides room service for the Mice family. He did. And he did that well, too. You know, that had to be very satisfying to provide a feast. I mean, I know I love putting down a full dog food bowl (laughs) still to this day, you know, and uh, nurturing is what I'm talking about, I guess. So in life and in fiction, we we like that. We like to feel that we can do that. It's definitely a book that has lessons in it, but they're not lessons that are forced upon you. You know, the mouse definitely, he wants what he wants, and he's hes selfish about it. He trashes that motorcycle. He ends up wanting it back, he, but he still wants the kid to get him room service, even after he's smashed his motorcycle. And without the room service, what is his family going to do? And, like, you know, he's still a bit selfish up until he realizes the kid is gravely ill you know when he thinks the kid is just a little bit sick he's kind of like hey kid where's my food yes (laughs) you know that where is it at it's this very understandable feeling that I'm sure a kid or even adult like myself reading it understands sometimes things are just needed Mm -hmm. even if it's not the right thing but then he sort of learns his own lesson in the end where he wants to save the boy exactly you're right and I mean it's neat to see a mouse have a character arc like that you know there's a turning point for him he makes a decision he forgets himself and does focus his concern on another creature you're right he was a pretty selfish little mouse (laughs) (laughs) but then you can look at it as also he ends up helping his family and he's a young mouse so it's kind of this theme of a child growing up and responsibility and that really weird thing that happened where ralph says to keith i grow up faster than you and it's like well you do because of your timeline as a mouse and that was kind of a thinker there you know (laughs) I know that was yeah yeah, you're right that was actually kind of profound yeah (laughs) and and I think sits in the reader's heart in an interesting place they know what it means they may not want to talk about it in their classroom Mm -hmm. you know because because they find it too sad or too profound to think a mouse's timeline is a lot shorter than ours and the dangers are greater and you know that kind of thing I asked Leslie whether she thought kids today would still relate to The Mouse and the Motorcycle. That was one of my big wonders as I picked up the book again all these years later, because it had been a really long time since I'd read it. You know, I asked myself, how will this story strike me now? Because some books that were favorites for me as a kid, they are standing the test of time, perhaps, but they are being challenged by, you know, new ideas, forward thinking, as they should be, I think. Uh, I guess that that kind of becomes... A point for discussion. I already talked about how I think most humans have imagined at one time or another what it would be like to have a friendship with a small animal. I don't think that goes away. So that element, I think, does stand the test of time. Same for a magic toy, in this case, the motorcycle springing to life. I couldn't remember how that had happened. Well, all it turned out to be was that, you know, Ralph had to kind of do a little boom, boom, boom thing with his lips, and that did it. And how great is that? Um, There is not anything diverse about this book. I, I noticed that and the sex roles are very traditional. Mom is mom, dad is dad. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I meant to note what the year was um, that it was first published. I don't know if you have that. You pro- I'm sure you probably do. 
Um, yeah, it's 1965. 1965, okay. Mm -hmm. So I really, you know, you can tell it is a book that is styled to its time in history, not surprisingly, and you can't hold that against it, I, I feel. But one thing that did really startle me was a strong presence of cigarettes and ashtrays. And I think we avoid that now. <laughs> like yeah. we say, I mean, it's less popular, you know, and, and now we know so much more about it. I mean, there's another thread, you know, the more we know, the more we would filter what we put in, no pun intended. Cigarettes have filters, too. But we would filter, I think, those kinds of things out. There's just certain things we're not going to cover and we're not going to place in our stages anymore as authors. What's interesting is that while many of Beverly Cleary's other books cover ordinary situations, like the Ramona series, The Mouse and the Motorcycle takes a fantastical leap. There are definitely themes of ordinariness throughout this book, like an ordinary hotel, an ordinary family, and even ordinary mouse problems. But it features a talking mouse. And despite this understanding between himself and the boy, Ralph can't communicate with just everyone. It seems as though he can only speak to those who believe, like an innocent child, for instance. Apparently, Beverly Cleary wrote this magical book for her son who, like herself as a child, struggled with reading. She wanted to captivate him with something that he'd enjoy, which in this case was motorcycles. And I was thinking, well, maybe she just came up against a time when she said, I need to shake things up a little bit. I've been dealing with these human characters in kind of a confine almost, maybe. The stories had a certain likeness to them. You know, they, they, they had a little Beverly Cleary signature on them, I felt. Mm -hmm. That's what happens with a creative, right? I mean, she probably wanted to break a bound for herself and grow. And so to add this element of uh, fantasy was kind of neat. Yeah. It's a talking animal thing. So despite many lessons appearing in her book, she states that didacticism was not her goal at all. In a New York Times interview, she said, quote, I'm not trying to teach anything. Then she thought of herself as a young reader and said, if I suspected the author was trying to show me how to be a better behaved girl, I'd shut the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. I don't set out to teach any lessons either. I want to, you know, most importantly, entertain that reader, hand them a good story. In the process, I think you naturally hand them a character that is inspiring in some way. And if they are inspired, well, then maybe some little bit of compassion, some little bit of empathy rubs off and, and good. They take that into the world, but it's never really the goal. Right. You know? It is a reward. For me, it's never the goal. That would, I think, make things run with a not-authentic thread too, too much for me. And Beverly certainly understood firsthand what it takes to capture the attention of someone who doesn't like reading. When I went to school, I, <laughs> I disliked reading. I sometimes felt that school didn't want us to read because there were long questions after everything we read, or we had to write um, book reviews and give the theme of a book. I, that was the question I hated the most. What is the theme of this book? I just wanted to read a book and enjoy it. And I think that's what children should do. But by third grade, after getting some help with her reading, she reached a turning point when... I picked up a copy of The Dutch Twins by Lucy Fitch Perkins, planning to look at the pictures, and I discovered that I was reading and enjoying what I read. 
and I kept on reading. It was a dull, rainy day, and it really was wonderful. Beverly's mother played a big role in shaping her love of books. I think I was fortunate in growing up before television and before many people even had radios because my mother read aloud every evening to my father and me. And uh, I don't know what I would have done in the evening if she hadn't. She read many books. She read uh, myths and fairy tales for my benefit, and she read travel books because that's what my father enjoyed. She really read quite a variety of things, and I loved those evenings. I wish more people read aloud. Growing up, Beverly spent a lot of time in public libraries and ultimately became a librarian and then a children's book author. And she feels that one of her greatest joys of being a writer has been... The many letters I have received from children or from their parents or their teachers telling me of a child who never liked to read until he discovered my books. I think sometimes what was hardest for us as young people turns into the thing that we do. I struggled as a reader. I was a really slow reader. I understand now, I think, that I had a little, some dyslexia too. Low reading comprehension. And I feel like those, you know, those weaknesses become my strengths in a lot of ways because I do want to make a clear story. So with that and the help of a good editor in <laughs> Catherine Teagan, uh, we get there, I feel. I and we do supply everything that is needed to understand the full story. So something that I was not or didn't see myself as has kind of come full circle. Very interesting. Leslie grew up in Ohio and in New York State. Later in college, she studied art. So I asked Leslie whether she thinks her art degree influenced her writing in any way. Learning how to make art definitely influenced my writing in terms of process. Uh, I think that those two really parallel each other, you know, and I think that learning how to make something out of nothing is always, you know, it was, it was always a good idea for anybody trying to be creative. If you can do that, you have something, I think. So it's interesting that I've ended up being a writer. I didn't see that coming. Right. That's why I'm wondering, you know, you didn't no. major in English or... I didn't. I always enjoyed English class. I was actually always a closet writer, but I mean, really a closet writer. I just didn't tell anybody I was writing, you know, and I don't know if any young people will be listening to this podcast, but I think that there's a cautionary note there. I think I thought writing was for the smartest girl in the class. And I was a little bit dreamy and drifty, a little too much to come off as the smartest girl in the class. That's just kind of another little note that there's a place for dreamers and for people who are concocting things in their mind. You know, I was the kid who would be trying to read the history book, trying to pay attention to the lesson, but hooking on to some great little tidbit and then daydreaming on it instead and making up my own story from it. And then thinking, oh dear, I don't think that's going to be part of the multiple choice test I have to take later. So. <laughs> Leslie and her family live outside of New Haven, Connecticut, where she spends a lot of time in the woods, which is part of her writing routine. We like the woods, and I think the neat thing about where we are is we border an 80-acre parcel that we hike on a daily basis, and we can go down to um, a river that is actually an estuary, a reversing saltwater stream, and there's a lot of wildlife, and our dogs run through the meadow there, and we have a good time. And it's actually a really big part of my writing day as well, because I start putting my head into my story there, you know, and just think while I walk. That sounds like the perfect place to come up with a story. 
It is. <laughs> what is your writing routine? Do you go on your walks and then you start writing when you get home? Do you wake up and write? Do you have coffee or tea? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the walk is kind of the start to the day in every respect. And, um, well, you probably have heard before that that opens up the pathways of the brain, just stepping outside in nature, no headphones, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, for me, I try to take it that extra step and think about what it was I was working on the day before and go back into those scenes and then begin to do what I call a little bit of dedicated daydreaming on the next scene so that I see what it is I have to write for that day. So, and, and you know, like I see my dogs kind of, they kind of insist that we get out there on the trail, so I might as well be starting my work day then. And then, yes, we come in, we make tea, you know, get comfortable in any one of a number of places. I like to say I have the traveling office because the laptop allows that, you know. So I'll pick a comfortable spot and try to get to work, you know. Now you said tea. What kind of tea are you? Earl Grey every day. That's my favorite. Oh, I, I love, love that. It. It's so good. <laughs> it is. It's such a nice taste. Besides drinking tea, Leslie also doodles as part of her routine. I always have a notebook for every project I work on, even if most of it is happening in the computer. There's always a notebook that it started in that hmm. was handwriting, and there's always sketching and that kind of thing there. Well, when you are doodling, is there something that you always doodle? Is it one shape, one thing that you're always drawn to? No single thing. I mean, I draw a lot of dogs. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, draw what's around you, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. But sometimes I just draw bubbles, like connect, connect, connect. <laughs> and sometimes they start to look like something, and then you'll put the appropriate eyes or wings or feet on them, whatever, that. that kind of thing. But, uh, but yeah, and, and every once in a while I try to sketch a little um, scene. Well, often, actually, I sketch a little scene of the setting of a place. I'm really into floor plans, <laughs> too. What? I like to do the floor plan of the place the character lives. <laughs> There's not, I've actually never really mentioned that before. It's kind of funny you got that out of me. But, yeah, I almost always sketch the floor plan of the house. That's so cool. <laughs> so do you do that before you start writing, or do you do it while you're writing? It comes along pretty early in the process. I'm always interested in the home the character lives in. And oftentimes, the home has something connected to the plot where I actually really do need to know whether the stairway goes up the middle or up the sides, you know. Right. So I just start seeing it that way. Also, I think it's interesting to know how close the inhabitants of a place are are to each other in some regards, and if the house has had a previous purpose, something like that, you know, would be important. And if a character sleeps in a quirky spot, I think that that's always kind of interesting. This is blowing my mind. <laughs> I've always heard about, you know, I mean, I've had teachers, I've had other authors tell me that you have to write about your character far before you end up writing the book. So you learn about your, or at least get to know your character. You start to understand them as who they are. I've heard this from so many different people that, who are writing experts that <laughs> you get to know your character, but I've never once heard that they drew the floor plan of their house. <laughs> but it just makes so much sense. It just blew my mind. <laughs> oh, neat. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's hard to separate out the parts of a book. I mean, you know, I've heard it said that character is the plot and that kind of thing. And sometimes I think that really makes sense to me. I don't do a lot of work on things separately from each other. It does seem kind of wrapped up. I don't know that that's a great thing for process, <laughs> but it does seem to be mine. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. 
I'm often inspired by place, too, and then ask myself who walks out that door. So that might be why I need the floor plan, because sometimes that does happen. Usually it's situation, but situation has to happen in a place, and then it has to happen to someone. So see, very rapidly, every aspect gets involved for me. As far as how Leslie comes up with the plots for her books, she often looks to real-life situations for inspiration. And this was definitely the case with her latest novel, The Truth is Told by Mason Buttle. I actually was inspired by a situation that I read about in the newspaper. Not a happy thing, actually. It's about some kids who made a really big bad mistake and harmed somebody else. I did not use their story specifically at all, but just the idea that that could happen and what it sort of means for them and for the fabric of the community and perhaps pick one point of view and move from there. And so I just imagined the kid who's already kind of an underdog. You know, Mason is described as this big sweaty seventh grader and he's loaded up with learning disabilities and there's even a little neuroatypical thing that he's got going on called synesthesia and he sweats too so he also has this diaphoresis and he is not that hard to come up with if you kind of spend some time in a middle school and just scan around you'll see the kid who's uncomfortable and possibly just the most earnest most helpful person you know in the building and yet you know that there's a struggle going on there and I thought you know, we talk about throwing rocks at our characters, and I thought, wow, I could really have at this poor kid, you know? So this book covers, as we just sort of mentioned, it covers very real topics, especially the topic of death, right from the beginning when you learn of Mason Buttle's best friend's recent demise, as well as his mother and grandfather passing away. What made you want to write a book covering these existential themes, especially in a kid's book? Yeah, it's hard to answer. I mean, I didn't set out to, you know, I didn't say, okay, now I'm going to do Mm -hmm. this. It's more organic than that. And of course, the article that I'd read made me think, oh, gosh, what if a death resulted from this? And then I have to say, I didn't really plan for him to be also orphaned. And yet it just seemed right. And I did not see his mother and I felt something had happened to her. It sounds like I'm getting a little frou-frou on you here, but there is a certain amount of it that kind of arrives. And yes, you can change it. But I always think that it's worth working with it the way that it arrived first. And then if it doesn't work in some draft, you know, you can change it. But it is hard to re-see and re-hear something that comes in pretty solidly like that, you know. I just really wanted him to have had a lot of rough luck. Right. I did think that that was important to his character. I thought we could see him rise. Yeah, they, they, people said it was a story about redemption, right? <laughs> There's redemption? Yeah, that's true. Leslie's books have been popular with kids and teens, but she's always thinking about how she can grow as a writer. My personal artistic challenges include keeping my stories kid-centered. Sometimes I worry that I'm meandering into a line or two or just a thread where I think to myself, wait a minute now, you know, don't forget to be 11. You're not really writing this for the librarian. You're not really writing this for the school teacher. Hopefully they will come and love it. But, mm-hmm. you know, we have really sophisticated readers now. And I feel like sometimes just because you can read something doesn't mean you're ready for it in other ways. And so that's something that's kind of on my mind. Like, I mean, I don't think that Mason Buttle is for eight-year-olds. I think it's for late nine-year-olds kind mm-hmm. of and up. And even some nine-year-olds may not really relate to this book. But I also 
also think that a 15-year-old can read it, and I know that a 55-year-old can because I keep hearing, you know, great, great things. And there are a lot of adults reading middle grade right now anyway. So keeping stories kid-centered is one thing. Keeping up with depictions of kids using technology is a challenge for me. That's partly my age. I am not a digital native, and uh, I have to realize that some 12-year-olds have cell phones now, which kind of blows my mind. I mean, our kids maybe got them at about 16, and it was more for my convenience than for theirs. And, you know, and the thing that I have to admit, my great shame is that I have failed to wrap my head around the video game thing at all. It's just not likely to show up much <laughs> in my books. So that might be a challenge I'm not even going to take on. But, but technology <laughs> in general, yes. I think also writing ethnically diverse characters without purporting to know that I know that experience personally as ancillary characters. I think that books for children have evolved. You know, there was a time when gay parents would have had to have been the issue in the book. And now we see more books where they appear on the page and they are there. They're not the issue. That's not what the main character is going through. Do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so I think that, you did that really well in Mason Butter with um, Benny's Two Dads. Oh, yeah, they're just there, and they appear very, you know, that they occur naturally. And so similarly, I would like to, you know, be able to do that, add add more diversity, no more cultures, tiny windows in. I would leave it to authors of color to tell the larger stories about what it is to be a person of color. Mm. Every book, I think every project you work on, you reassess Right. You know, jiggle the brain and move sort of almost socially forward on that. And, of course, there are great blog posts and groups to follow now that, that help with that. Certainly, We Need Diverse Books has been a right. really great you know, organization and movement. movement. So I'm trying as a white author to respond in the appropriate way to that. I haven't figured it all out yet. So what do you think mm-hmm. that reading can provide kids that YouTube videos can't and social medias can't? Oh, good question. Well, I think it can provide, you know, scenarios that have the solutions that we see a character go through drama, trauma, change, whatever, and come out the other side. So I think, I mean, it's just uh, being able to see that things are survivable is one of the elements I think that's important about books today. I think, too, uh, the escape hatch aspect. I mean, you know, let's go into this and just look at this for now, and I can handle this here, or I can put my sadness here with this book, or I can cry over this book uh, now and then I can blow my nose and go out and do the thing I need to do. You know, I, I don't know a reader who doesn't enjoy escaping into a book. I mean, I think that's the, one of the great purposes. And it can be a book that's really rooted in reality, too, that still does that, you know, that still mm-hmm. kind of takes you away. And you get to laugh, too, you mm-hmm. know. And that's the other thing is sometimes a book that deals with a heavy subject or something that's sad actually has some really funny threads going through it, too. And I think keeping humor there is really important, you know. What happens in this in the truth is told by Mason Buttle is sad, but I think that it stays just to the right side of being bleak. I would always feel horrible if I wrote a bleak book. You know, I wouldn't want that. There's got to be hope at the end, and I think that's one of the most important things that any book, classic or contemporary, can leave a kid with is a really great sense of hope. What do you think is the future for Kidlet? 
I hope we'll continue to see more diverse books written by people of color. I expect that. I hope more stories make it to audiobooks. In the absence of a person to read it out loud, you can hear it out loud. Um, they, that's really become a neat genre. I mean, a, a, you know, a neat medium. I'm looking forward to whatever the next new thing is in terms of art for kid lit. I think graphic novels are a terrific stride for winning over some readers that we might have missed along the way. I'm curious. I feel like art isn't done yet. <laughs> I feel like I'm interested in what comes next. Those are just a few of the things that I have on my mind. That's not very profound, I guess, but it's, it's what I've been thinking about, and I might leave it to someone else to predict the future of Kid Lit. That's a pretty ominous question. <laughs> Special thanks to Leslie Connor for joining us. You can find out more about her books at harpercollins.com. And you can also reach out to Leslie personally. I'm on Instagram. I'm Hey Leslie Connor. I am on Facebook. I am a very little presence on Twitter because I don't really get it. I have a website. It's just leslieconnor.com. And happy to have people drop in there if they want to email me. People can also write me letters. So Old school. And I write back. I write <laughs> back. I always write back. If you enjoyed the show, help us spread the word about Remember Reading. Tell at least one or two people and help our listenership grow. Check us out on Apple Podcasts and please rate and review us. Remember Reading's producer is Stephanie Marutis of Cuvenda Media, and I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for listening. Until next time.